This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me out. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today is a, a, a long-time friend in the Oz film critic circle, a uh, Australian Film Critic Association award-winning critic, and a writer for the Star Observer. He's also a graffiti with punctuation alumni, and former Brisbane dude who now is firmly cemented in Sydney. His name is Lawrence Barber. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on to One Heat Minute. Good to finally be here <laughs> after after being. I'm not going to say pestered to watch this movie. No, pest, pestered is fine. Okay, all right. Yeah. You're you're allowed to yeah. say pestered. I've, I've you know it should get it out of the way. <laughs> I have not seen this movie until very 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 recently. Yes, that's so it was a bit of a like I have to like hoist my socks up to yeah, yeah. to be ready for this. And I apologize to anyone who has seen this film more than once because you're probably going to know more than me and I'm going to sound like a dick. No, yeah. you're not going to sound like a dick, number one. <laughs> but number two was, it's actually funny, I reckon just around the time that I even had the idea just setting, I caught up with you and Garth uh, Franklin and uh, Matt Whitehead and we're all just having a pre-screening uh, tipple, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, and you talked about an idea for a podcast you guys wanted to do, which do you want to talk about it on this podcast? <laughs> I was worried that you would bring this up. The problem is like, if I talk about this, is someone going to steal the idea? I, look, I think it's this such is, a... This is copyrighted and trademarked. <laughs> um, so the, the idea is that Matt and I got um, bizarrely obsessed with My Cousin Rachel, the <laughs> film starring Rachel Weiss and Sam Claflin, um, remade from the film starring Olivia de Havilland. Um, because, like, it's the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> um, or the most terrible. I don't know. We just got so, fi- <laughs> we got so fixated on it in advance because just the, the need to remake it, I think, in this day and age felt yes. su- like such a bizarre impulse. Um, <laughs> and just, like, the, the, the name is so... It's that very, like, 1950s, 1940s yeah. kind of, like, this is just what it is. Um, and it sounds like it's about a dude wanting to bang his cousin, cousin Rachel, which it more or less is. Um, <laughs> yes. And just every, everything about it, everything coalesced into this strange obsession. Um, and we decided um, ab- abortively in hindsight <laughs> uh, that we would... No, we're going to do it one day. We're definitely going to do it one day. That we would re-watch that movie once a week for a full year and oh do a God. podcast episode about every single one, uh, every single viewing. Um, which <laughs> would truly be an insane undertaking. Yeah. Possibly not as insane as this one. No, uh, no. But I just, I remember saying my idea to these guys. And they're like, oh, that's really like good and ambitious. And they told me their idea. And I was like, I would love that. I don't want to watch the movie. I just want to hear you two well, drink and watch that movie. <laughs> that was always <laughs> the thing is like, we would have to start every episode being like, do not watch this movie. <laughs> Never watch this movie. Uh, you know how many times we I want would you watch to it? experience it through our diseased brains. <laughs> oh, that's so perfect. One day, one, one day it will happen. You're you're pioneering. You're like showing that this is a thing that can. It be done. can actually happen. It's insane, but it can happen. Thank you for uh, agreeing to be pestered and watching this movie. I really appreciate it. I mean, it's a really fucking good movie. It. Oh, 
That is good to hear. <laughs> that like, is. I, I didn't. I didn't have any um, apprehension about watching it, aside from the fact that it is nearly three hours long. Yes. Although I am no stranger to, to long movies, as you know, I saw two four-hour films. At <laughs> yeah. film what was it? one of them? Was a musical? Am I wrong? A black and white Filipino musical. Oh. I love Diaz. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but I'd only seen of Michael Mann's films. I'd seen Black Hat, mm-hmm. um, and at some point, very hazily in my schooling, I saw The Last of the Mohicans. Yes, but I have no real memory of it, of it other than um, Daniel Day Lewis's long hair. Beautiful long hair. Um, so I came into it like knowing enough about his kind of deal, partly from reading and listening to you over the years. <laughs> Um, but you know, people have this reverence for Michael Mann and I've always kind of been like, Oh, I, I feel like I would probably share that once I finally get into it. Once and so now it. I'm here. You're here. Now I'm in the, the, in the place. Um, you're in a safe place with, with friends, <laughs> yeah. with friends. So, um, we've, I've got Lawrence in for a real, uh, it's a real cracker of a minute. It's very sort of turbulent. There's not, um, not a lot of dialogue. The one piece of dialogue that there is in. And this is delivered by the amazing um, Diane Venora's Justine, where she says, so I guess the earth shattered, which closes out the minute. But we are in the 62nd minute of Michael Mann's Crime Opus Heat, where we have seen Vincent Hanna come to a crime scene. He's found a young prostitute who's died. He's currently right in the throes of nursing her mother, played by Hazel Goodman. Um, the prostitute is unnamed, so she goes unnamed. And her, her character in the script is just prostitute's mother, which... She is. Um, it was the 90s. <laughs> it was the 90s. And it's a trope that's been going for many years. Um, but it's this really um, wonderfully uh, scored scene by Elliot Goldenthal. We're going to watch it. Um, you guys can, we're going to watch it again just to refresh. You guys can listen along and then we're going to come back and we're going to chat about it. Yes, the earth shattered. So why didn't you let... Great minute. It is a good minute. Um, I, was, I was struck by how moving I found that scene. It's such an odd scene for a movie like this. I feel if you think about convention yes. in many ways. Just the... the, the, the but also, like, the, I, I don't know. It's, it's interesting to watch it, you know, 20-odd years on. Um, especially, like, the, the place of African-American people in this story. And, yeah. like what kind of um, prominence they're given versus the lack thereof is fascinating because you've got this mother grieving, but she's not really, you know, her dialogue isn't given prominence. She is speaking, but it's not put forward. It's, yeah. it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And it's also really, it's a great, it's, it's sort of that tragic and it falls into that archetypal space where it's like a prostitute's mother 
you know, the, the prostitute's mother is there. They know her. Um, Cindy Katz, who plays Rachel, who's the crime scene detective in just the preceding minute, she's like, yeah, it's fucked up. The family knew her. I actually think that's partly one of the most tragic things is that she's like a local girl who's turned to prostitution. Her family knows she's around. They're in this ghetto area where this stuff happens all the time. And you're right. The other big, you know, uh, uh, storyline that's happening alongside is Donald Breeden, who's just come out of prison, played by Dennis Haysbert. And he's experiencing the very worst of what it's like to be in institutionalized because he is he's struggling. 25% of his pay is being flipped to this little twerp and manager. And he's just, you know, struggling to kind of make, make way with what's happening. But this is, I, it's for a scene, uh, for a film that's got like such beautiful staging and so much of it, the beginning sequences of this minute, it's so like disorientating. It's, you know, the score is swelling and it's, 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 it's it's you sort of surrounding the characters and the grief that she has, um, does a few really choice cuts um, in and out there, and you sort of look at him and she's just throwing all of her emotion to him. There's not a lot of speaking; they're just sort of emoting to one another in this very classic, you know, cl- classic Hollywood way, almost like silent movie way, and then they yeah. hug and go from there. Well, that, that's that's the thing that um, got me about it is if you look at the scenes where any of the men in this movie. Uh, with kind of their love interest or their wives or anything. It's staged in such a similar way. Yes. And it's shot in such a similar way. Um, whereas, like, this is the moment where I feel like in the entire movie, other than perhaps the ending, he's actually connecting with another human being. Yes. Because um, he, as a character, feels so... He's so driven um, by his job that he's kind of dispassionate about everything else. Whereas, like, this, this feels like it's almost cracking his facade. Yes. Like, it's almost breaking but he keeps it together because he knows like this just means like i have to keep going with this and he and he, and he gets that there's a, almost i don't know how to describe it it's like um and i've only sort of picked it up in this is when he walks away he's sort of it's like he's in a bit of a daze you know yeah. he sort of reels out of this exchange and she's just emoting at him and he says something you know in a sort of lost in translation kind of way he says something it whispers something in her ear like and and it kind of I've tried to bloody listen to this thing up it's so loud but it's it's I don't know if he just says something as simple as or what it sounds like as simple as it's her it's mm. her yeah and that's all he has to say or it sounds something like that and she just wants no 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 she's holding him she's she's pulling his lapels on his jacket the camera swelling around and it is that genuine there's something so beautiful about that sort of in that moment, he's guards down. Like, you see that in his performance. I think in his eyes, he's guards down. And I agree. I think this is such a... You know, the face that's at, like, eight seconds at this minute, he's trying to remain composed, and he just can't do it. Like, he then has to embrace her once again because she's slapping his lapels. Yeah. And he just sees her, and, and, and he just has to... He, he has to hold her just one more time just to sort of finally calm her down before the young African-American cop and the young two lady lady cops who are on the scene sort of take her away from what's happening. Well, it's like the, he turns and he faces away and it's almost like he can't bear to watch her walk away. Yeah. Like, there's some part of him that wants to stay with her and be that cop for once. Yeah. Which is really interesting <laughs> because the rest... Like, he doesn't get a chance to do that. No. Um, at all in the rest of the movie and presumably not in any of any of his professional life and lord knows he doesn't do it at home <laughs> no, no. um goddamn chicken as we, <laughs> the goddamn st- yeah as we start to see um in in the next scene um she's she's great like just in that hazel goodman is the, the actor's name she comes in and just destroys for like a minute and is such a real authentic 
devastated person and it doesn't it doesn't feel overplayed it feels perfectly pitched and it just complements with him and just the reaction shot here she, that she leaves him with like you said he just can't even look at her he doesn't want to look at her he's looking off into the dist- middle distance there he's not really focused on her walking away he sort of has a scan and he, he's just there's I love so much of Pacino's performance in this movie because like in about four seconds from like 29th second of this minute to the 33rd, his eyes are darting around but his face is not moving and it's just emoting so much and you can just project all that stuff that Lawrence and I just talked about like straight into his face here. You're like, shit, this is like, this is, is he going to break? And then like, no, straight back to Swagger again. It, it was, it was weird for me like watching it for the very first time and just trying to calibrate my feelings about his performance yes because you know I, I haven't seen that much Pacino certainly not um, older you know classic Pacino yes um, versus the more recent um, <laughs> terrible Pacino I think, well, it's, I think that canon your words, is <laughs> your words not mine um, but at the same time it's this odd performance of masculinity mm. that he's putting on yeah um this this sort of staging of power that he has to feel he feels he has to put forward in every scene even when he's talking um to to his wife it's the same kind of thing where he's forming this this shell um mm-hmm. and whatever is left of act- like who he actually is as a person inside is there but it doesn't get many chances to kind of peek through and this is one of the, r- the rare times that it happens, but also like he's so, he's so mannered um, in many ways, you know, the whole method approach to the, to the performance that when it's, when he's just being a human being, like he is here, it's, it's really quite started. Like it almost pulled, it almost pulled me out of the movie. Yeah. Cause I was like, nothing that he's done so far suggests that, this could be a version of him. Yes. And it's only what comes after this that sort of shades in this scene and makes it make more sense in the larger context of the movie. Yeah, because right now up until this point, you have no context around, you know, um, you, the failures of upcoming stakeouts or the <laughs> of uh, the failures of the marriage and, and the pure, raw emotion that comes out of that or, or like, you know, all the way up into the final scenes. Like, you've got none of that and then the, the Lauren, Natalie Portman scene that a lot of people know. But... There's this, yeah, this is that, that great sort of emotional truth moment. I think this, I don't know what it is about this swagger of this shot, but it like feels so like Chinatown, end of Chinatown for me, this shot where he's like walking away from the camera um, and it's all set up and there's all this police tape and there's all this massive audience. You've got Cindy Katz who plays Rachel, the amazing crime scene investigator sort of. And, and she's, what's great is that you can see in the frame, she looks over at the mother and her eyes scan from him to her like you get the sense that she's seen him do that at crime scenes before. And it's also, you get the sense that from, from working with him and being around him is that she's taken on his traits. She's seen him and she is as detached as he is Mm -hmm. um, when they're looking at her body, um, the body of this, this unnamed sex worker. Um, She's got like rice stuck to her face, which is such like a, it's such a disorienting element. Uh, yeah. to, to include something like that because it just, you know, it's already unsettling to see someone dead. Yes. But it's extra unsettling to have something so kind of mundane thrown into that. Yeah. I guess it's the same thing as, you know, it reminded me a little bit of Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, yes. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a, I, I'm surprised I didn't expect there to be quite so much lynch. There's in, a lot of lynch in this. In this. Yeah. Um, in many ways, other than, it, you know, obviously being LA, which, you know. <laughs> Is, is Lynch's bag very much so as well. But the, the whole thing of, 
you know, finding Laura Palmer dead wrapped in plastic. It's it's a similar thing of like she's she's dead. She's got rice on her nose. Yes. Kind of thing. It's this weird, unusual mix of the, it's so the it's horrific s- and it's, the normal. Yeah, so asinine. Like, oh, there was someone threw out someone threw out a box of Chinese food in the in the yeah. same bin that this girl was disposed in. And yeah, it's really it's really devastating. And the the whole the whole movie weirdly it has. It's it's obviously a very different version of it, but it has like the feel of dream logic, even though it's a very logical yes. film, which is something that I didn't expect. And then it really plays out in, in this scene and then it immediately cuts to this kind of airy, roomy restaurant overlooking the city with like this gorgeous view behind it. And yes. there are obviously many, many gorgeous views of the city <laughs> at night. Um, many, many, many views of that throughout the film. Um, but again, it's like, it's going from uh, a you know a complete lack of privilege to this incredibly privileged environment. Yeah, um, and it's something that the film I, I think it skates over it more than like if it were made today. Yeah, you would have to spend more time on those elements. Oh, hugely. Um, and it just, was just to make the story make more sense. And in it's a, in a in like the world building and the con- social context. And it's really funny is because this movie like literally is made. Right around the same time as the OJ, like the entire OJ Simpson thing oh, happening. Be, yeah. So it's like, I, I think it was actually made and released right before, but it comes on hot on the heels. So it's really interesting to look at the whole little snapshot of what it's like for, you know, um, African-American experience around the, you know, institutionalization in prisons that you've got with Don Breeden, which is that bit. And then other bits that don't lean into that as much. Yeah. So it kind of feels like it's on the cusp of, different cultural moments so it's like it kind of is allowed you know in the, in the historical context it sort of is allowed to not be that but yeah I think if we're talking about what it would be now absolutely like it's a different yeah. that, that that becomes almost one of the central stories like it builds in as the, the central story and this other stuff's happening around it, was, it. well that's the, the interesting thing you think about the Don Breeden character is like he's getting a second chance she's not getting a second chance no, no. and that you know I feel is so interesting and representative of the conversations about, you know, black men and black women Women. and how they're portrayed on screen versus each other and what kind of prominence their stories are given, um, which is such an interesting touch. One of the things that like, you know, obviously I watched it and I read a bit about it because I wanted to come off a little bit, like (laughs) tiniest, tiniest bit knowledgeable um, is all, you know, and it started like the pilot there was a pilot. Yeah. Of this story. LA takedown. It was called. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and all the sort of people looking back at it saying like, it, this feels like a blueprint for what we know as prestige TV. And if this were made today, it would probably be like a 10 episode limited series on HBO. 100%. And you would have all of this time to explore all of these tiny little subplots. And this is one where you can totally imagine there just being an episode from the sex worker's perspective. Like you're getting this whole kind yep. of oh, yeah. version of her life leading up to this moment. Um, where she's just trying to survive and finds herself in that horrible situation um, with what's his face? Yeah, Wangro. Wangro, the worst name um, ever. But but what? what <laughs> Wangro, the like fertilizer brand. <laughs> That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. But what I would say to you is, I agree. I, I imagine that like if you if you went back and you remade that, you would feel like the episode was taking a digression in the series. It'd be one of those weird ones where people are like, oh, I didn't really know that it was doing this. I had no, oh shit, here I'm, I'm he is. I'm such a sucker for those episodes. I, me too, I like them too. You know, pioneered by the amazing TV show Enlightened that I will never um, refuse an opportunity <laughs> to talk about. But it's that thing of like, you, you tell a larger story through a character and more and more shows have started to do that. Yeah. Um, and I feel like this is one of those moments where you can imagine that story being taken out of it and 
um, in in today's world you would give that prominence whereas it was the 90s and you could kind of just have those stories bubbling under and like they would they drop in here for a moment and then kind of recede and so many of the um, the black characters in the film they they come in and they come out and they don't have much impact um, they're not sort of as threaded through the fabric of the of no. the story in the way that all of the other characters are if you think about um, Breeden's girl is it she her girl, his girlfriend or I like don't know friend that's, that, that's one we've talked about partner. is he feels like uh, Lillian is a yeah. character's name and uh, it, she feels like to me because and and this is we've uh, sort of touched on it briefly in another podcast um, um, uh, we touched on it uh, uh, is that Kim Staunton who plays her she feels like she was with him before he went to prison. And she's not and, anymore. And yeah. and she kind of wasn't, and then now she is, and she really is helping him to get back on his feet because she knows that it's a vital part. So I want to say... And also, like, I would wait for Dennis Hayes. Oh, my I God. I need to throw that out. Dennis, he's one of the most beautiful <laughs> men on the planet. 90, 90, 1995, Dennis Hayes, but <sighs> in that shirt when he was... He's beautiful. He's literally one of the most beautiful men at the time. And so, you know, you get the feeling like she's she's together with him and maybe... She's ready to relinquish that. Yeah. Um, but like she gets, you know, not to jump on too much, but she, <laughs> get, she gets this kind of moment to mm. respond in the same way that the mother does in this scene. But again, that's all it is. And then she's gone. And then, then she's she gone. Is removed from the story because, you know, it's a, it's a dead end. And it feels like all the African-American characters in this story reach that dead end because oh, ultimate, she- ultimately it's the, like, egomaniac <laughs> yes. you know white men who not like make the story all about them because you know I'm not saying this to cast dispersions on Michael Mann's approach to the story but you know this is this is culturally where the story goes yeah it comes down to this story of obsession between these two white dudes white dudes um, who like secretly want to fuck each other I'm just gonna <laughs> I don't know if that's been discussed not not at length but we can absolutely go there on this podcast I'm happy to go there I that that was the thing that got me. It's like it reminded me of Hannibal. Yeah. In great. Obviously, you know, Michael Mann has his own connection. Yes. Um, to to uh, that universe, but that thing of you know is is this um, fixation on each other and what each other does. It's about mirroring, but it's also about like wanting to be with that person. Yeah. And the, you know the dinosaur scene, obviously. Um, you know, you touched on it in the episode, but just like this sense that, you know, they're kind of made for each other. Yeah. And, and, and that's what it's so, you know, ultimately devastating is that they kind of know they're made for each other. They know there's this weird, and I get you because it's like that sexual, there's almost something sexual about it because it's like, there's a sense of completion when they're together. Like, yeah, th- we're meant we're two parts of a whole, we're two parts of a whole, we're, we're, you know, and, and Chris Nolan apes on it and steals it liberally for the dark Knight. Whereas like, we're made to do this together with yeah, the Joker yeah, and yeah, Batman, totally. you know, like he's like, we 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 should just do this forever. This is the fun of it. And I think that this movie's smart enough to not play it ha- its hand like that, but it's totally cool to sort of evolve and stew and give these ideas and stories. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I think that, you know, what, what, some of what we're talking about is the ultimate failure of some of the imitators of this movie since it was made. Because I think that in some of the ways that you're talking about it, you know, if you went back and remade Heat, you know, a, as a television series, you would keep large, you would keep pretty much everything. Yeah. And what you would do is go, these great 
wonderful side characters like Lillian. I want to see Lillian on the weeks before she has to pick him up from yeah. prison. It's more about building out the story. The, yes. You wouldn't have to do anything else. No. Because what's there is so good and so effective. <laughs> yes. But it's just like... You, you, you're almost only scratching the surface of the world in which this is taking place. And then what I love, but what I love is there's so the characters are so well performed, and the texture of their surrounding stories is so good that, like, these are the weird moments and the weird satisfaction I have after doing this podcast. Is I wonder, I'm like, what was, what does Lillian do? Like, what's her job? Like, I think yeah. I get, I go down rabbit holes of like, what does Lillian do for a job? Like, I wonder what she does. She's so good and calming and. And it has, is she worked as a psychologist or, yeah. a, or a sociologist or something? Is she is, is she worked in you know um, those things? And I sort of go down these rabbit holes with these characters. And Hazel Goodman, I'm like, oh, what happened to her daughter? Like, how did she get in that Where situation? Where does her life go from here? Where does she go? Like, what does she do with her kids? Are her other kids standing over there? You know, like, yeah, are they are her other kids going in the same direction. Like, is this yeah. the cycle of violence continuing and yes. sort of rending her her family apart? Like, it's there's so many interesting questions and you know there's so much interesting going on but also you know for for me i watch movies like this um and just the the stories i'm interested in are are rarely the stories that are the ones at the top ones at the the top top of the hierarchy yeah um you know I, i want the stories about women and people on the margins first and foremost because they're do, usually doing something different. But, you know, I can come back to this and get, you know, just as much pleasure out of the, the main story here. Yeah. But just like, you know, we only get a tiny little bit of the next scene. Um, but when he walks into this restaurant and she's been waiting for him and sits down next to him and she just gets like, she just drags him. But like in the most <laughs> kind of poetic, um, like flowery, wonderful way. Like she's not just reading him to filth. She's like dissecting him piece by piece throughout this movie. And we see it. Well, I love how you said she drags him because what's so amazing is you feel like the previous scene is the scene where you really get to finally know Vincent Hanna, like pure everything yeah. that is great about him. He walks onto that scene. He swans on. If you guys are listening now, because Lawrence and I are talking about the 62nd minute of this amazing film, you've heard the 60th minute, which is with Manola Dargis, who called Vincent Hanna's entry into that scene Garbo-esque. He, walk, <laughs> he walks in like he's swanning in. He, it's his stage. Yeah. There's helicopters. It almost looks like a film premiere. There are things going on. And then at the culmination of the scene, there's this really beautiful poetic moment, which Lawrence talked about, which is like, he's finally unguarded. He, 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 he feels like in this moment of anonymity almost with this mother who's not even named, he gives so much more of himself than he does to other characters. What I love is the immediate compliment is this scene. Cause I think a lot of people must forget the sequence of it because they're like, Oh, it sounds a bit contrived. And I'm like, no, why I love this scene. It's is so smart to put this scene here. It's perfect because she just, she basically says, Hey, I know that I don't know anything about where you've just been, but I know that you went and looked at the scene and you looked around for signs of passing and now you're just going to shut down and you're going to, you know, lose the power of speech when we fuck and that's it. And she just eviscerates him in the most... And he tries to sort of play it off with a little bit of histrionics, but it's just perfection. I can't tell you how many people I now want to say that they're <laughs> walking, well, walking through like, or living, living with the remains of dead, dead people. Dead people. Oh, what a line. What like, a I'm line. just going to go up to people in the street and say, <laughs> you're living with the remains, remains of, of dead people. people. And just like the, the low husky voice. She's, I don't think I've seen her in anything before. Diane Venora is amazing. She's, she's fabulous. She's, uh, she does a really fantastic job in an upcoming Michael Mann film in 1999 called The Insider. Mm, I knew um, that. 
Maria Lewis in our 90th episode, which you're going to have to wait to hear, praises her work in The Jackal, the terrible 90s movie with Bruce Willis and uh, Richard Gere. Um, if you want to see Richard Gere doing a terrible Irish accent, you can, see, you can see Diane Venora and, and, and she's uh, some... some uh, uh, I think she's from the Basque clan or something like that. And Maria says she's got Basque bangs. Um, so uh, she, she's just she's I mean, phenomenal. Her hair in this movie. Oh my god, great! And shape shifting, like uh, what a stunt queen. She, <laughs> she's amazing, and she's um, I think in later life has been on, and I'm not sure if you're a fan. I'm, I haven't seen them, but it's like the one of the American horrors. I want to say. Oh, like, okay. One of those series she might've been on as an uh, American horror story. One of the story uh, covens or whatever. One of those right. franchises. Okay. But she's a phenomenal actor. Like I, I look at her in this movie and I'm like, how have you not won an Academy Award? Well, I think it's, it's her and it's, um, is it Ashley Judd is amazing. This Ashley movie. Judd is amazing. I love her. Um, her like Angelina Jolie, like, yeah, before Angelina, hair. yeah. Before Angelina, like she set the stage for <laughs> um, But the, uh, is it Kevin Gage? Kevin Gage plays Wayne Grow. He's, like, that character is despicable He's... and awful and, you know, the movie makes great pains to tell us that. But, like, his, the way he plays that is so good. Oh, he's excellent. Um, and, like, also he has those eyes that just, like... <sighs> His eyes uh, are just... Uh, mes- like, they mesmerize you, and you sort of see, like, you can tell why he has this power over people. Yes. Um, beyond just being who he is and, you know, being a, a horrible serial killer. Yes. Um, like, there's, some- there's something about that. There's a, a, you know, that very kind of 80s and 90s version of serial killers where they had that kind of magnetism. They weren't sort of weird loners on the fringe, necessarily. They were people who, who you know, were evil, and they knew that they could wield power over over, over others. He's got a great high functioning, I want to say high functioning ability to kind mm. of still work, like, even though his work is, I'm a cowboy and I will murder people, but like his work in, in inverted commas feels like he can still function normally. Whereas yeah. later on, I don't know, it feels like for a little while in the 90s it goes out of the window, they are purely loners yeah. and then it sort of gets reined back in with more modern, you know, serial killer storytelling where it's like, oh no, they can kind of like have a job and do stuff and also be weird. I think that's the like, the Netflix doco um, influx of our lives, you know, basically. <laughs> well, he, I've, to me, his character feels like if, um, like Neil didn't have a conscience. Yes. Oh, yeah. Because there's the same, like, modulation, the same kind of minimizing of behavior, of, yeah. of passing unnoticed in order to do what you do, but it's being used for, you know, not dissimilar ends, because they're both criminals. <laughs> yes. Um, but, you know... We've got a very strict moral line drawn yeah, like in this you've movie. Yeah, like, you've got um, Macaulay in the bank... Um, telling people like your money is insured by the US government you'll be fine like, yeah. this isn't about you <laughs> yes which which is such a good touch and it you know that gives you a sense of where he's operating from um, and then you've got you know his whole thing with Amy Brenneman which like don't get me started because I'll just make so many references to the Jane Austen <laughs> book club and it'll just derail this whole podcast even more um, but the, that that duality I feel between those two characters is almost like living just underneath the one between the main characters, between Pacino and De Niro, yes. of being like, in in some way, both of those men could also be Wayne Grow. Yeah. Like, there's a version of them, if they didn't have the fixation that they did on their on their job and a degree of professionalism, which is very Michael Mann, yes. 
then they could be that guy. They could be that horrible person committing all of these, you know, gruesome murders. Yeah, and they're all, all of them, and I think you made such an amazing point, which I hadn't really thought about until talking to you, which is why I love this podcast, is that that shared focus and magnetism that they have, all three guys share it. Like, there are some weird connections we're starting to see. Like, Wayne Grow is, you know, he's that, he's that Neil without a conscience, as you said. So the connection between those guys is really explicit because it's, you know, running in parallel to the movie, you know, Wayne, even choosing to hire Wayne Grow is, you know, part of the overarching demise of the Macaulay character. But there's such this, especially in that next scene that we see, you know, the, the scene that we're in, um, where we're watching Vincent sort of look at the aftermath of a Wayne Grow death and it's probably landing in his court. This is another guy, another adversary, that he inadvertently uses as bait to catch this other more compatible and moral adversary. But, you know, these are the kinds of guys that he, he he's looking at weird reflections of himself as all the time. Yeah, and it's the, the thing that um, he talks to, to Justine about is like, do you really want me to share this kind of thing with you? Yeah. I have to keep this angst in here. And you wonder like, is it the angst that you're keeping in there? Or is there, is there some kind of like, if you hunt down these people, then it battles your secret desire to actually do what they do. Yeah. Um, which is a really, you know, interesting element that I think the, the kind of exaggerated performativeness of Pacino in this movie, like it, it hints at that. Yes. There's like a mania to it, which he's channeled into a productive place. Yes. But unleashed, <laughs> like you don't know where it could go. You don't know. And, and I think, you're, you're validating one of my theories, which is um, Chris Nolan made a movie called Insomnia with uh, Pacino and Robin Williams and Hilary Swank. And I feel like that's like a Christopher Nolan went, I'm going to take Vincent Hanna, the famous cop from LA, and I'm going to make him finally slip past any kind of morality and turn him into a cop who'll just do anything to succeed because that's what satiates him as an older person. And so I feel like that's very much, it's that kind of like, in Chris Nolan's mind, anyway, that's the logical step for this character. That eventually, yeah. that that like you mania, can't that you back. can't hold that back forever. That but something's going to slip. At the same time, I feel like the way the movie ends suggests that like he's he's, re- he's he, reached it. Like he, that's the the brink where he would either topple over yes. or pull himself back. Agreed. And you know, to me, it feels like he pulls himself back. But I guess you don't know. You don't know. But to me, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm not the Nolan, but we're both not as like <laughs> psychopathic as uh, Chris well, Nolan. Like, I, 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 I just want I just want good things for Natalie Portman. <laughs> Me too. I just want her to have a like a nice, polite oh. father figure in her life. I wouldn't know? mind that too. Because <laughs> her father and what what's so you know, what's so fascinating about the Vincent character is that he's in his own way in his job, he and, and, and even when it's at a middle distance, like with Lauren, those Natalie Portman's character or like this Hazel Goodman character, he's able to sort of be productive with how he manages emotions and, you know, deflect, oh, this shitty dad who, look at him, he's never here. But he's never there. He's never there. <laughs> uh, the, the super interesting thing about the, the one line that Justine has that dips into this minute is the way she says, like, has the earth shattered? And so she knows that... I mean, she knows that something has happened every time she sees him. Yes. But, like, she knows that this one is particularly seismic for lack of a better word yes like she can feel that he's been affected by something in a way she hasn't been able to affect him in many many years yeah and or you know however long they've been married because he's had three yeah three so, couple probably, of years probably not that long <laughs> six months <laughs> <laughs> but um 
you know, she she knows, but at the same time, his guard is already back up. Yeah. Like, he has had this moment of vulnerability, but it's not... It, it doesn't last. No. Um, the, the walls are immediately erected again. Um, and that is why I... Particularly why I love going from, from that scene into this one. Yes. Um, is just the, the, the dichotomy of, of who he is is so fascinating and one of the things that I loved about this movie. Well... For a guy who only saw the movie, like, yesterday. Look, I am, like, a film critic. I know what I'm talking about. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Lawrence Barber. Lawrence is good at pretending like I do. No, he does. Great observations. That is a fantastic... You have to come back. You're coming back. Yes. You've seen it now. I've seen it now. I'm, I'm trapped in the you're, vortex. You're, you're, you're trapped in the vortex. <laughs> um, ladies and gents, you can find Lawrence at, at Bortleby on Twitter if you want to check that out. That's B-O-R-T-L-B. Yeah. And uh, Star Observer and other places that yes. he's around. Um, uh, most weeks on Friday nights at 8pm on ABC Radio Sydney and sometimes nationally I do reviews with Christina Arno. Oh, there about he half is. an hour, so you can tune into those if you want to hear me blabber about movies and more. Yes, and, and you should. You should. He's very good. Lawrence, thank you so much for being a part of One Hit Minute. My pleasure. This is amazing. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, this has always been One Hit Minute. I've been Blake Howard. At Blake is Batman on the Twitter is where you can hit me up. But anything you want to know about the show, it's oneheatminute.com. Thank you to Garth Franklin for our web design, Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme, and thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time for one more Heat Minute around the corner.